Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So let me ask a question as we get started in the message today. How many in the room are a fan of 80s hair bands? Okay, okay, we got a few. Jan is very excited about 80s hair bands. So, you know, like maybe Motley Crue or Def Leppard or ACDC, you know, some of those hair bands, White Snake, you know, they're, they're a good one. Um, so here's the reason I mentioned that. It, it, it will tie in with our message, and here's why. The 80s hair bands kind of, I don't know if they invented this genre of music, but it's a very unique uh, subgenre of music, and that is called the power ballad. So it's sort of when these rock bands and everything's electric and loud and hair waving, you know, and skin tight pants and all that, all that kind of stuff, you know, the, the leather head to toe kind of thing. It's like maybe once every couple albums they get really sensitive or they want to write a love song, but we're a hair, we're a hair band. How are we going to write, I love you, you know, that's not going to work. Probably. I mean, for the, for the right girl, that, would, that may work, right? But probably not. And so every once in a while, they would write, you know, these power ballads where they're still rocking out a bit, but they're, they're a little softer, a little more sensual, a little more romantic. And so, you know, some, some of the greatest hits of the 80s and even early 90s are some of these power ballads. And so we're going to look today at a biblical power ballad. I don't know if you know this, but Paul actually wrote one of these types of songs. Now, it's not exactly the same because it's not really a love song per se, but we're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning as we're journeying through the Bible, beginning to end, front to back, all throughout the year. We have now reached uh, these uh, letters that Paul wrote to churches, and today we're going to look at the church, uh, the letter he wrote to the churches in the city of Colossae, or the region of Colossae. So the, the book of Colossians here, in the first chapter, he wrote basically an ancient hymn. And it's not, again, a love song, but it is a theological song, and it's all about who Jesus is. So let me just give you a heads up. I hope you brought your waiters with you, because we're going to go a little bit deeper today. We're going to hit some terms that you may are not, maybe not familiar with, but they are very important to not only the text we're going to look through today, but really to explain who Jesus really is. I think there's probably maybe no more important question in the universe than who is Jesus, and maybe the secondary question of that is then, now that we know who he is, or if we know who he is, what do we do about that? How do we respond to knowing who he is? That's what we're going to look at here today. And we're going to start out with, we don't know if this is the reason Paul wrote this part in Colossians. It's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We'll read it in just a second. But at this time in ancient history, the first century, and then way on into the second and third century, there was sort of an ancient heretical false teaching called Gnosticism that right around the time Paul is writing this is really starting to gain steam. So it, it's important for our discussion, even though it may not seem like it is. Let me just explain sort of the core idea of what Gnosticism is. So uh, gnosis is this Greek word that means knowledge. So Gnosticism is this idea that there is secret knowledge that you can know about God. 
that it's sort of hidden. You have to look for it. It has to be revealed to certain select uh, elite type of uh, spiritual people. It's not available to everyone. If you really want to know who God is and you want to be like him, he has to reveal this secret knowledge to you, this special information. And so I know about maybe 15 years ago or maybe close to 20 years ago, there were these uh, Gnostic gospels that had resurfaced. They were all over the History Channel, even on some mainstream news, you know, the gospel of Judas and the gospel of Thomas. They're not in the Bible because they're considered Gnostic gospels. They're revealing secret underground knowledge that if you can grasp this idea then you really will know who God really is so this is an idea that was kind of sprouting up and even spreading in some of these churches and so Paul has to address this because the idea of Jesus is it's wide open it's not secret it's available to everyone it is for everyone he is not trying to play hide and seek you know he's he wants to be found he wants to be known and experienced and so paul writes this uh, this power ballad if you will to kind of hopefully show us that no that's not what is true and accurate about who jesus is and another big thing about gnosticism is with this secret knowledge it really denied the divinity of jesus so as we'll, spoiler alert, we'll talk about today, Jesus is God. I don't know if you knew that or not, but if you didn't, he is, and we'll talk about it for a little bit. But that's a pretty big deal. Jesus is not really who Jesus is if he is not God. And so that's part of this, it's secret knowledge. Like even Jesus, he, the reason he is so important, according to the Gnostics, is because he attained the secret knowledge. Somehow he got this special download that then he gave to a few disciples who then spread it to a few others. And this little secret club is the only people who really attain really salvation in the way that the Gnostics would believe it. So again, that may not seem like it makes any sense or like it matters, but it does, and it does, and we'll see why as we read here. So we'll approach, again, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We did this a couple weeks ago in, in uh, Ephesians, where we read a short passage, and then we broke it down verse by verse. It's kind of the attack, the approach we're going to have today as well. So we'll read the entire ancient hymn, this power ballad from Paul, and then we'll break it down and look and see really five keys about who Jesus really is. So let's read it, Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So we've read this hymn in its entirety. Now let's kind of break it apart, examine it. And again, we'll see five, I think, key truths about who Jesus is that will help us to see that he is for everyone and he is for you. Okay. So the first, the first thing we see here about Jesus from this hymn is that Jesus is the creator. Jesus the creator. 
So let's look at these verses again. The end of verse 15, end of verse 16, Paul writes, He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. One of the keys to Gnosticism that we just discussed was that it denied Jesus' divinity. He was not God. He was just a super enlightened human being. Paul comes out the gate to squash that. He says, no, Jesus is eternal. He does not have a beginning. He does not have an ending. He has always existed. Before anything was made, he existed. And everything that was made, he made it. He is creator. So he was there in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then if you look down later on at the end of Genesis 1, when God's sort of talking to himself, if you will, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is eternal. He was there at creation Paul says that through Christ, God made everything that was made. So Jesus, in that way, is creator. Everything that's ever existed comes from him. Now, here comes another kind of term that you maybe are not familiar with, unless you know Latin. You know, I don't know if you do. I studied Latin one year in high school because at the time I thought I was going to go into pre-law, into politics, and I thought, I'm going to need to know my Latin so that I can read these. I, I, I assume that law books were written in Latin. I don't know what made me think that. Anyway, um, <laughs> So I did not learn this. I actually learned this in Bible college, not in my Latin class. But anyway, it's, this idea in Latin is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. This is what separates Jesus from any other being who has ever existed, is he made everything out of nothing. That's why the Big Bang Theory is so close to, like, it's really the closest thing we have to Genesis 1 in science, because that's what it's claiming, right? The Big Bang is everything came from nothing, except how does that happen without someone behind that making the everything from nothing? So it's so close, and Genesis 1 fills in that little bitty gap that this theory fails to tell us, is that yes, everything came from nothing, but it came from someone who preexisted the nothing and the everything. So that's what Jesus did. He's the creator. And I think what's a distinction that's very interesting about this is the distinction between creator and creative. Now, you and I as humans, we are made in God's image and likeness, so we are made to be creative, and we can create things. But the difference is we can't make anything from nothing. I mean, even think of the greatest works ever made by man, the Great Wall of China, massive, huge. I mean, we're talking a long period of time to make this thing that you can see from space. Think about the Mona Lisa, one of the most famous paintings of all time, even though almost everyone I've ever talked to who has seen it in person is really underwhelmed by that painting, you know? It's kind of small, like, is it really that impressive? I mean, it's pretty impressive, right? It's one of the most famous works of art. Even think about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, I mean, one of the most beautiful pieces of music you'll ever hear. Those things are amazing in their own way, but the creator of those things didn't make the tools with which to make those creations, did they? They had to have the material, whether it's so many notes that we have audibly to make, to arrange into a beautiful symphony, whether it's certain uh, materials with which paint is made and the canvas, like, you can't make something out of nothing, but Jesus can. And he did. And so we're creative, and we should be, but we should see the distinction here between our ability and Christ's ability. 
So since we're made in his image, let's be created, but understand that God is creator. There's another part about him being the creator I want to talk about for just a second. So Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, when he described our system of government, he said it is of the people, by the people, and for the people, right? Paul says the same thing about creation and Christ. Look at, look at what he says here. He says that it comes of Christ, it is of Jesus, it is by Jesus, and then he says everything that was made is made for Jesus. I think that's interesting. Of him, by him, and for him. It was his plan, it was God's plan through him. It was by Jesus, his creative work made all things that were made, and it is made for Jesus. So the reason that anything exists is just because Jesus wanted to do it. He had no need, like, man, there's no beauty in this vast nothingness. Let's make a sunrise on this little planet called Earth. Like, he didn't need that. He didn't need relationship with you and I to be complete or happy. He did it because he wanted to. And really, I think the main reason that he created us to have relationship with him is to have someone else to display his glory to. I mean, I, mean, I think it's a pretty amazing thought to consider is that everything is made of him, by him, and for him. And I hope that if we view everything in the universe that way, everything that's been made in that way, maybe it'll change the way that we view everything. It's from him, by him, and for him. Jesus is the creator. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing that is very much related to this idea is that Jesus is also the sustainer. Verse 17, Paul says, he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. He's got the whole world in his hands. Like that's where that came from. Whoever wrote that plagiarized the Bible. No, they, they didn't. But it's important to know that Jesus didn't just create everything and then just leave it to chance. He sustains everything. He holds it together. There's an Old Testament psalm we'll look at really quickly. Psalm 19, I think beautifully, this is one of my favorite passages in the Psalms. It displays this idea to us. Psalm 119 verses 1 through 6 show us the sustaining power of Jesus. It says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. So nothing in the entire universe ever happens completely by chance or accident. It is strictly because Jesus sustains everything. And here's the cool thing about him being the creator and him being eternal and all-powerful. He can do all of this without getting tired. So he can make sure all the billions of galaxies with billions of stars are exactly where they're supposed to be at every given time. And he's like, what's next? What else can I do? He can do all of those big things while still being personally involved in your life. He can watch every detail of everyone's life while doing everything because he is the creator and the sustainer. It's amazing. Think about this. The earth rotates at 1,000 miles per hour. So right now we're spinning at a thousand, think about how fast that is. 
why aren't we flying off the surface of this planet right now? Well, you could say it's gravity, and you would be right. Or you could say it's the sustaining power of Jesus, and you'd also be right. Those two things are the same. He designed it in that way. Here's another one. Your body, if you didn't know this, is composed of seven octillion atoms. Seven, that's seven with 27 zeros after it. That is seven billion, billion, billion atoms make up the average human body. Now, what keeps those seven octillion atoms together to form a human body? What holds them in their place and gives them their shape? And you could say physics, and you'd be right. And you could say the sustaining power of Jesus, and you'd also be right. I think what we hopefully are discovering in our current culture is that science and Christianity do not have to oppose. In fact, I would say science and Christianity do not oppose, right? They don't. Any effort to try to make them compete is a futile effort. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute with reality. Biblical Christianity is not anti-science. Notice I said biblical Christianity is not anti-science. Other people's versions or ideas of what Christianity is may try to be anti-science. And certainly some science tries to be anti-Christianity, but it actually doesn't work that way. Science cannot displace Christianity. Science does not disprove Christianity. In fact, the more that we learn about the world and the universe, the more the Bible makes sense. If you read even the Old Testament, Psalms, Job, Isaiah, the descriptions in which these ancient peoples talked about how the world works is exactly how the world works. And they explain it exactly how we would explain it now, sometimes in different terminology. But even in Psalm 19, they knew that the sun goes from one to the other. So there was this side, even what 3,000 years ago, they understood almost as well as we do even now, how this universe works. So faith and science do not compete. They actually go together because Jesus is creator and sustainer. Now you might think, well, that's kind of cool. That's neat. You know, I love science and I love all those types of things. But let me make these two points personal here for just a minute. Here's the big, important, I think, personal aspect of Jesus being creator and sustainer. And that is... If God created everything, if Jesus was at creation, involved in that, he's all, he also created you. And if we know that everything has a design and everything has a purpose, then guess what? You have a design and you have a purpose. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. Jesus made you on purpose for a purpose in the image of God himself. So you have dignity as a person. You have worth as a person. If for no other reason than because Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit created you on purpose for a purpose with a plan in mind. You were made in the same way of Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. Why is that important? This, here's what it means. We, so if the first part of that, of him and by him, okay, we can get that. But you're also made for him, which means if we're not living in a relationship with him, we are not living in our full design and plan and purpose. That's why people apart from him have some sort of something missing. They can't always figure it out or name it or put their finger on it or whatever, but that's why, because we're made of him, by him, and 
for him. Relationship with him is part of our ultimate design as our creator. And then he sustains you. If he, can, if he can handle everything in the universe and everything in every galaxy that we even haven't yet discovered yet, he can take care of you. He can handle your problems, your worries, your fears, your cares, your issues. He sees you. And sometimes we think of that as a threat, don't we? He's watching you. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying he, he can see when you're hurting, he can see when you're confused or when you're lost or when you're, when you're hopeless. He sees you. He watches over you. He guides you. He's there to strengthen you and provide for you as your sustainer. Not just the big stuff, but the little things. Not just the macro things, but the micro things. Not just the galaxy far, far away, Star Wars fans, but your life, your issues, your struggles. He is creator and sustainer of everything, including you. Here's the third thing that we see from Colossians 1, and that is Jesus the man. So the first half of the first verse, verse 15, Paul writes, Christ, I love the way he words this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And then down to verse 19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So here's our third kind of big theological term to help us understand more about this. I mentioned it briefly last week. That's kind of what led me to mention this this week. It's this idea called the hypostatic union. So this theological idea is that we have one nature. Okay, Humans have a human nature. What separates Jesus from all other humans who ever lived was he in, in him had two natures. A completely human nature, just like we have, and also continually, simultaneously, at the same time of his human nature, he inhabited a divine nature. So we say that Christ is fully God and fully man. That's what we mean. He's the only 200% person who ever lived. Now, quickly, one objection to that, though, is, okay, if Jesus is supposed to be our example on how to live, if we're to look to him and he's God, that's not fair. Because I'm certainly not God. I don't have divine power or ability. So how am I going to follow him? It's not. It's cheating, right? It's like me at Cornhole yesterday, according to David, right? It's cheating. (laughs) So not to get too in the weeds here, but we looked at Philippians a couple weeks ago. So Philippians 2 tells us why this is not the case. So although Christ obtained a divine nature, Philippians 2 tells us that he sort of took, what's the best way to do that? Um, He sort of took certain parts of that nature and laid it aside in a, in a, in a manner to then be, have, to engage fully with his human nature, okay? So again, the, the pushback there is, well, it's not fair, but the word is, I guess I would use deferred. Christ deferred his divine power while still being, having a divine nature to engage fully with his humanity. So when Jesus was tempted, it was real, That's why scripture says he was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. When he was afraid, it was real. Like before he's crucified, he's in the garden, he's literally sweating blood. That's how stressed out he was. That is a very rare medical condition that he's experiencing in that moment. It's real. The pain that this man, even though he's a God man, experienced, it was real. So he felt the nails in the hands and feet. Like he felt the spear in the side, like he felt the crown of thorns. He, all the pain he ever experienced was real. And his death certainly was real, human death. He died a physical, literal death, even though he, he had a human nature and a divine nature. 
But here, here, let me get personal again on this one too. The reason that Jesus being human is so important for us is because I think it shows us really what God is like. A lot of people question, wonder, ask, what's God really like? Or some people, in their effort to dispute who God is, they'll take one part of one verse from an Old Testament scripture and say, well, God's like that. I don't want anything to do with that. But no, no, the whole point of Jesus coming to earth was he shows us what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at the life of Jesus. If you want to understand God's philosophy on everything, read the red words in the New Testament about Jesus, from Jesus, by Jesus, and you'll see what God is like. He is full of compassion He's full of grace. He's full of forgiveness. He's personal and relational. A lot of times we think God is far off and distant. No, he's not. He's very much personal and interested in your life. And this is who Jesus desires to be to you and to me. Jesus the man came to show us who God the Father really was like, what he was really like. That's, I think, an important feature and factor of this song from Paul. And then the fourth thing is maybe the most obvious one, but let's look at it. It's probably the most important one, and that's Jesus the Savior. In verse 20, Paul writes, Through him, that's through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Again, it may seem the most obvious, but this is the whole point of Jesus. This is the whole plan right here is Jesus as our Savior. And I think when we put together what we've already discussed and then think about Jesus as our Savior, when I thought of it in those terms, what, here's what jumped out to me, is that sin, human sin, is the complete opposite of the original creation as God designed it. So again, creation is of Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. Sin is of me, from my desires. It's by me. I commit the sin, and it's for me. I do it because that's what I want to do no matter what God says, no matter what the Bible says, right? It's of me, by me, for me, and that, those three factors destroy the first three. That's what Genesis 3 is all about. Genesis 1 and 2, everything that was made was perfect, beautiful, good, as it was designed to be. As soon as humans enter the story, everything comes crashing down. Everything explodes. Everything is fractured. And so we see that here. But that's really the beauty of salvation, I think. Is Here's what salvation is. Salvation is the creator forgiving his creation for destroying his creation. Salvation is the creator then fixing the destruction from his creation, of his creation. So the, the creator is like, you messed this up. I had this perfect, pristine, running amazingly, and then you come in here and mess it up. And God, in his wisdom, in his mercy, sends his son, who was there as part of that creative process, to then save and forgive those who messed everything up. And then, when all of time is then through, everything will be as it was meant to be. Everything will be perfect once again. Not right now, but we're awaiting that time that is yet to come. So we see this interesting, I think, fascinating idea here. And Paul says that Jesus did two things here. He reconciles us to God. Perfect, proper relationship. He makes it right. And it's the only way that this can be done. Only the Creator, only Jesus can mend that 
fractured relationship. There's no other way it, it, it can happen. So again, going back to Gnosticism, it's not secret knowledge that brings us to God. It's the Son of God that brings us to God. It's not our works that save us. It's Christ that saves us. And it says he bring, Jesus brings us peace. And here's why that's so important. As we said, if you're living apart from Christ as the creator, you're not living out your full design and potential. What's equally important and true here is that if we're living apart from Christ, we're not living in the peace that is offered to us. Peace will always elude you. Peace will always be so close. If I could just do this, or if I could just have that, or if I could be like them, I would feel better. Wrong. Only Jesus brings the kind of peace that we really look for, that our hearts really desire, that our soul needs. And it's peace now and peace forever that Jesus offers. And the key, before we move on to the last one, is Paul, Paul tells us how did Jesus accomplish this? How did, he bring back, how did he bring us back to God? How did he give us this peace? It was by his blood on the cross. So your peace ain't cheap. Your forgiveness cost a lot. It cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. He, again, literally physically died a brutal, torturous death for our sin to bring us back to God. So I hope that we can then, with this understanding, and again, this is one of those things I think, especially if you're a Christian, we don't maybe think about this as often as we should. Like, I think we know that we're a Christian. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. We know that Jesus did it, but sometimes we just don't think about it. We just know it. We don't think about it. So maybe what we might do, hopefully, is then think about it more often on a regular basis about what, what my salvation costs, and it will then create such a heart and spirit of gratitude from me to the Savior who is Jesus. Here's the last one as we begin to close, and that is Jesus the head. And this is Colossians 1 verse 18. Paul says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. Jesus does show us what God is like, but he also shows us then what we can be like. It doesn't come from this secret knowledge or information. It comes from Jesus himself revealing to anyone who believes in him what we can be like. He's our head. He's our example followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. A disciple simply means a follower and a learner. That's all that is. I'm following Jesus every day. I'm learning from him every day. He's my example. He's who I aim to be like, and so it's all about him. And let me close with this one, two more verses that are just after this hymn in Colossians 1. Paul tells us sort of the beauty about what, why this is important. Why does it matter that Jesus is in charge and he's the head and he's supreme? Here's why. Go down to Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27. Here's what Paul writes. This message was kept secret. I think he's maybe doing a little elbow to the Gnostics there. It was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. That's us. And this is the secret. Here's the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Christ is our head and he lives in our hearts. That's the power that gets us through anything. That's the power that overcomes everything. That's the power that gets us up in the morning when nothing else will. That's the power that moves us forward 
forward when everything comes against us is that Christ lives in you. You individually, and then he's the head of the church, Paul says. So here's the thing about this church in particular. We, are a, we love Jesus at this church, and we believe in Jesus at this church, and we preach Jesus at this church unapologetically because he's the head of the church. So here's what I would say. And I don't, I'm not talking about any church in particular. I'm just saying any church that does not have Jesus at the head and at the heart they're something, but they're not a church, right? They're, they're an organization, and they're a group of people, but biblically defined, they are not the church if Jesus is not at the head and at the heart of all that they are and all that they do, and that's who we aim to be here. Now, being made up of imperfect people, we're not going to get this right all the time, but that's the goal. That's the aim, that Christ is the head of the church. He is supreme. He is over all. So let me ask these two questions today, and then we'll close. Let me make two statements and ask two questions. So as we've seen today, Jesus is supreme. Maybe if you look in your Bible, probably that maybe the heading above this psalm is the supremacy of Jesus or Christ is supreme. It's going to have something probably supreme in there, okay? Like supreme pizza, not to get you hungry, but supreme, right? That means he's everything, like supreme pizza, everything. He is, he is supreme. But let me ask you, in your life, is Jesus supreme? Is he in control of your life, Really? Do you put him first in everything, really, right? Is there something else that's maybe taken that top spot that needs to get replaced with the one who is supreme? He is, but is he? Jesus is enough, as we've seen here, but let me ask you in your life, is Jesus enough? Does your life reflect that? Is he your ultimate source of hope, joy, peace? Is he your number one go-to? Or again, are there other things that you run to first when he's like, no, I'm enough. I made you, I formed you, I sustain you, I know you, I lead you and guide you and empower you. Like, come to me, is what Jesus is saying. So he is supreme. Is he supreme? He is enough. Is he enough? So may we not just in our, in our belief claim that he is, but may our lives reflect that Jesus is enough and Jesus is supreme. Let's pray. God, today we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is our creator, that we were designed by him on purpose for a purpose. Help us to see that today. Thank you that Jesus is our sustainer, that nothing happens in our lives that goes unnoticed by him that he desires to be and hopefully is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. He sustains us. He strengthens us, guides us, empowers us in this life. And I thank you that your plan of salvation included Jesus becoming like one of us on this earth as fully human, although fully divine, to show us who you are. We don't have to guess what God is like. We don't have to worry about what God is like. We don't have to wonder or question about what God is like because Jesus shows us what you are like. Help us to see that in Jesus. And Jesus, we, we thank you that you're our Savior, that there is no other way, that our sin separates us from God, and yet you bridge that gap by your blood on the cross. Thank you for being our Savior 
And thank you that you are our head. In our individual lives, may you be supreme. May you be enough. May you be number one. And as a a church, a corporate body, may you continue to be our head. May you be number one. May we be all about you, exalting you, worshiping you, sharing our faith about you. May that be everything to us because you are supreme and you are enough. And we thank you and praise you that you are everything to us, and that's enough. So God, I just pray for that truth, these truths today, to just be ingrained in us this week, even as we leave today, to think about the goodness of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, the power and the care and the love of Jesus in us and through us. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.